This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Matt, hello. Are you enjoying the baseball season so far? I'm loving it. I think we're breaking new ground on the podcast today. We have had on uh, a variety of baseball people. We've had a lot of players. We've had uh, you know coaches and, and general managers. I think this is the first time we've ever had a player in the middle of a season, which is really cool. Players in the winter are easier to get. So the fact that we've got a, a player who's willing to talk to us in the middle of the season, I think that that's awesome. I'm very happy about that. Uh, joining us on the phone, Cole Figueroa um, of, the, uh, of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Cole, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank uh, you. For those of you who don't know Cole, quick background on him. He was a sixth-round pick of the Padres in 2008. He spent some time in the big leagues with the Rays, Yankees, and made the Pittsburgh Pirates opening day roster this year. Was once referred to by David Price as the toughest hitter he ever faced in college, which is pretty high praise. And uh, if you don't know what makes Cole particularly interesting, he codes an R and Python and knows pi to more than 50 digits. And we're really interested in talking to him about the data today. So Cole, I just want to get started kind of on how you got started. And uh, I was reading an interview with you and basically when you were in the race system, the, the quote that stood out to me is, if it's important to them, uh, referring to analytics, why isn't it important to me? And I thought that was cool because we had Chris Coglin on a couple of months ago, and he basically said the same thing. It said, He said, these are the guys who are giving me jobs, who are you know, assigning my contracts. I need to know what makes me valuable to them. And that made him a better player. And, and I'm curious, is that kind of the same thing that happened for you? Right. It, it, it just makes sense. When you go through um, kind of your evolution as a player, you look into how you can make yourself better. And in terms of uh, on-the-field stuff, um, there's only so much uh, subjective uh, coaching you can get. I mean, everyone has an opinion on how your swing should look or how you should field a ground ball or why you're doing certain things. And I've always been uh, data-first driven. Just as a person in general, I just don't believe in things unless there's something factual to back it up in. And uh, it just made perfect sense when I got traded to the Rays and they're preaching, you know, certain aspects and they're showing the data to back it up that it was uh, kind of like a perfect marriage for me. How much of that stuff can you take onto the field? Because I think, you know, something simple like understanding on base percentage is more important than batting average, I think is pretty easy to understand. But can you, let's say you know that there's a guy who's got a very high spin fastball and that maybe changes the way the ball is going to come out of his hand. Are you able to change your approach against the guy like that? Is that useful? Right. It's useful in a sense. I mean, you have to look at it this way, too. Baseball, hitting a baseball is almost physically, I mean, it's in terms almost impossible to do, but it you can do it, obviously, but there is some guessing involved. Um, so having this data helps you uh, get past some of that uh, static, uh, gets past some of that stuff that maybe you wouldn't see if you were just uh, hitting off a tee one day. So like, let's for instance, um, you know a guy has a high strikeout rate, right? You know he has some pitch that typically guys can't handle. So typically to me, that, that's like one of the first things I look at, look at their strikeout rates, look at how they're getting guys out, and that tells me that maybe I should swing a little earlier in the count because for some reason or another he's putting guys away. 
you know, it, it may be a pitch that I could see, but I don't want to wait around with two strikes to uh, see and try to find that out. Um, uh, on the inverse of that, or the adverse, uh, a gr- high ground ball rate guy, it's not typically someone you want to go up there and swing maybe first pitch, especially if you haven't seen him before, um, because typically that's what he's getting paid to do. He's getting paid to throw the ball early in the count, strikes, down in the zone, and um, try to get you to roll over a ground ball. So those are typically a couple things that I look at before I go up to at bat. Um, there's a few other things, but those are two of the main ones. Now, is that the kind of stuff that you find the most useful? Because I, I saw you tweet a few weeks back that you were saying uh, you were studying positional spray charts while watching a different baseball right. game, which I, I thought was interesting. And, you know, what kind of what data stands out to you as being the most useful? And really, how much of it do you go off on your own and find out as opposed to what was provided to you? Right. So the teams at the major league level, they provide you with as much data as you can possibly consume. And I think that's the big thing. That's the big word there, how much you can consume. Each player has their own different threshold of how much data they can take into a ball game uh, for good or bad. It's, it's, it's an indifferent thing. It's not like this guy can consume more. So he's a better player. It just doesn't work like that. Um, but when it comes to defensive, uh, I'm sorry, defensive positioning, it's obviously a big factor. I mean, these things are proven that uh, percentages say a guy hit the ball in this direction off this pitcher. So why not try to help your team and know these certain aspects of the game, especially someone like me who's going to be coming in late in the game probably for defensive purposes um, to know these certain things and maybe I could save a run here or there because I'm in the right position. Now, Cole, the last you know, three years you've played with the, the Pirates, the Yankees, and the Rays, three of the most analytically inclined organizations in baseball, I'd say. Right. Did you notice a lot of similarities the way they approach things, or were there some, some significant differences? We're like, oh, wow, they look at this. This club looks at it really differently than that club. Right, so they're all similar in a sense. I mean, most of the teams have uh, their own databases. Um, they all look at similar numbers. Um, I think in terms of at the, let's say, at the minor league level, um, there's definitely more teams that are a little more advanced than others. Um, but at the big league level, they're all pretty similar. They all try to get you to consume as much as you possibly can. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I, I kind of have a soft spot obviously with Tampa in the sense that that was the first team that I had gone to. And it was, uh, kind of this, we're in this process of moving out of the, you know, standard positioning, uh, standard uh, gameplay tactics to a more, you know, advanced gameplay, advanced defensive positioning uh, game. So I, I, I always put them in quotes when I talk about these things because, like I said, they have a soft spot in, the, in terms of introducing me to it, um, at least on a larger scale. Um, but it's, it, it was definitely uh, all three of them are definitely good at uh, getting it to the players and helping the players understand it. So I think your current organization, the, uh, the Pirates, are really underrated in this sense in terms of how analytics right. friendly they've become. I think uh, Clint Hurdle has done kind of a 180 from what his reputation was in Colorado. And they've actually got Mike Fitzgerald, who is that a guy in the clubhouse, who's really done a great job of kind of getting that data from the spreadsheets into uh, a useful form for the players. And so I'm curious, when you were a free agent this offseason, in theory, you could have gone wherever you wanted. Did you choose the Pirates because of that or because of potential opportunity, the way the roster was set up, or some com- combination of the two? Uh, I think, in theory, yes. I guess uh, it would make the most sense that someone like myself uh, could go to a team that would be you know, more data-driven, but it really had no effect. I think when it comes to minor league free agency, um, it's, a, it's a lot harder to look at in terms of um, – in terms of uh, roster positioning, because you really just don't know. You're kind of in the dark. Uh, you don't know what other minor league roster guys are going to sign. You don't know what other big league free agents are going to sign. And someone like the Pirates were, 
uh, a team that I kind of looked at because they aren't a big market team, and I knew that uh, they would have to have some players on their roster, maybe for the minimum or close to. Um, so I was kind of looking at the roster, seeing what they had, and then kind of seeing kind of their financial outlook, and that's kind of how I decided to kind of hone in on them. So the, the, obviously the data is great. That's a, a secondary thing that I love that they do, um, especially my time there. Uh, at least from now um, to the start of the season, it's just been great. Uh, Fitzy, he's he's in the clubhouse every day talking to guys about different things they can do, and he's a big part of our meetings. I mean, he's in almost every meeting. He's pretty much uh, everywhere in the clubhouse. I mean, anytime you can, uh, anytime you walk in our clubhouse, he, you can find him. So he's very accessible in that term. So a few days ago, uh, you know, you made the opening day roster with Pittsburgh, and you were there um, since then. And a few days ago, you got sent back to AAA. How much right. does that affect the quality of the data you're able to use? I assume there's not nearly as much available for the, the AAA teams. Right. So it used to be very much of a difference. I mean, when I was in Tampa, you'd go from, you know, as much data as you need to pretty much just, you know, heat maps of pitchers. I mean, that's pretty much to the extent. But actually, Pittsburgh, it's, it's incredible. They do a really good job at the minor league level, too. Um, they have video. Uh, on the pitcher you're going to face today, they have obviously the heat charts, they have tendencies, and it's pretty incredible where the game's gone from just, let's say, eight years ago, nine years ago when I got drafted to having none of this. I mean, you literally were seeing a pitcher for the very first time, uh, not knowing anything about him, and pretty much it would be like a bad telephone game. You know how you still play the telephone game, you say something to somebody, and they go and say, and, you know, and it kind of gets to a point where it doesn't even make any sense anymore, like it wasn't the original message. That's kind of how it was when you were hitting at that level, uh, probably about nine years ago, you'd have the leadoff hitter come back and tell you, oh, he's got cutter, little sink, uh, good curveball. And then the next guy would come up and be like, oh, his changeup's his best pitch. And you'd be like, okay, I'm completely lost. But now the data's there to back up uh, some of the things they'll tell you in the meetings. Now, one of the other big changes in uh, data availability is the introduction of, of iPads uh, in the dugouts. This year was the first year, I believe, that all teams were given access to iPads. Is that something that you saw um, – you know, the Pirates using a lot in the dugout or maybe observe from the, the opposition and how, how, how they were using it? Right. It's funny that you say that. I was like the, the iPad guy. I don't know if it was <laughs> by reason. I don't know. if it, I, think, I think 50 just thought, you know what, I think is a safe bet he'll take the iPad. And, I, I, you know, I'd gladly. I mean, I would have, you know, bullpen uh, video, bullpen tendencies. I'd have the defensive positioning. Um, and guys don't, they don't really like, you know, they don't really like come up to you and be like, man, was I sitting in the right spot? You know, they're in the middle of a game. They're not trying to, to consume too much. But there would definitely be times where, you know, uh, you know, I'd go up to Jordy and be like, I'd be like, man, you're doing a good job, like with moving around and being in the right spot. Cause he's, he's really good at like studying the charts and knowing where he needs to be. And, um, and he'd be like, yeah, what do you think about this guy be, in terms of like maybe today? Uh, what do you what do you have on that? You know, we kind of just talk back and forth about little things like that. It wasn't be, it wouldn't be too extensive or too intensive, but it, it was just something to kind of get us chatting baseball during the game. You know, I'm glad you brought up the idea of uh, you kind of got this reputation as the iPad guy because obviously you were new to the the Pittsburgh camp this year and you had to meet all the players and everything. But you kind of got a little bit of buzz during the spring because the the Post Gazette and the Tribune, a couple of papers, started writing stories about you and how you were kind of into data and the analytics. Uh, and I'm curious, what was the reaction in the clubhouse about that? Your teammates must have picked up on that, started looking at you a little differently, some in good ways, some in negative ways. 
Yeah, I'm sure there was some good and some negative. I, obviously, the clubhouse in uh, in Pittsburgh is really tight knit, and they know people have other interests. And actually, there's a few other players, Jared Hughes being one of them, who actually has done some programming himself. Um, so we, you know, you kind of have this baseline with some players, but I, I'm sure it wasn't all good. And I'm sure to this day, I mean, players are going to get away from that, but. All I've been really trying to do is learn more about the game. Uh, I don't think it's going to hurt anyone to try to dive into some things that really, like I said, it's going to only end up helping your career. I mean, if you don't consume it, you're really not getting anything out of it. And say you do consume it, what's the worst that can happen? You have a little more knowledge about the game. So uh, in terms of that, I I always thought it was a win-win for me. Um, in terms of my teammates, they never treated me differently. Uh, they never kind of like shied away from me talking about it. And they were kind of actually interested um, to what extent was my knowledge and kind of how I used it. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that's cool. And I've been in some clubhouses recently, and you can really see the tide is starting to turn. Guys are understanding that it's useful. Uh, their employers value it, so it's really something they should get some knowledge on. Uh, I kind of want to take that back to one of those articles. You kind of a couple years ago, I think before you were with Pittsburgh, you saw one of your teammates in the batting cages and the discussion of the chopping wood swing motion to get backspin on the ball came up. And that's kind of been something that's been taught forever because it's true. If you get more backspin on the ball, you will get more distance. I think that makes sense. But you kind of corrected him that that's actually not the right way to have your swing path. You maybe want to have a little bit of an uppercut swing. And the reason I bring that up is because one of our former guests, Dr. Alan Nathan, who is a physicist, a doctor of physics, who has been a big part of our uh, baseball StatCast world, tweeted that he was so happy to see you get that correct because his lessons have made their way onto the field, and that was just thrilling for him. Yeah, no, uh, Dr. Nathan and I, we've we've chatted via email quite a few times. I've I've actually been reading his work for quite some time now, but you know, our first real email experience. And like I said, we talk probably about once every couple of months just to kind of keep in touch because I'm fascinated with some of the things he does. But going back to the to the chopping wood, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was like me trying to push something on someone. It wasn't me trying to teach someone something. It was just something I saw a player who was getting frustrated um, with the results he was seeing um, on the field and during VP. And he just, you know, he was a little lost. And I think at that point in time, it, it was just an easy um, avenue for me to just be like, hey, maybe try something different here and maybe think of it this way instead of thinking it that way. Um, and I think he, he, he kind of like changed his mindset on some things. And, and to this day, um, I still talk to him a little bit. He always says that now he's a numbers guy, which I don't particularly <laughs> believe, but it's, it's just uh, it's just something like it's like kind of an inside joke to us. And um yeah, I was just, you know, basically explaining to him that, you know, trying to have that downward action, you're almost creating this negative plane, and it's causing the ball to chop down, and you're going to hit ground balls. And this is a home run hitter. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, that makes sense, but I'm trying to get backspin. And I'm like, well, that's not the way you get backspin. You can, your bat trajectory needs to go, be going almost in an upward plane. When you make contact, you can almost see the bat tilted. And, you know, we just had a few conversations after that, and, I mean, he's going to be a good player no matter what. I mean, it wasn't like that was some, you know, revelation that went from him being an average player to a great player. I mean, he's always going to be a good player, but it's just something that to give him maybe a little, a little nugget that he can take and maybe use in his career and maybe have a better career. And that's really the key, isn't it? Like distilling it into a way that everybody can understand without getting too deep into it. Uh, Cole, final question I have for you, and we actually need your help. I need a ball player's opinion on this. We have been getting all sorts of new StatCast data, obviously, over the, the first year plus to this, and a lot of that time has been spent here just trying to learn it ourselves, figuring out what's useful, how to best use it. 
And so one of the cool things we have is route efficiency. And so what oh. route efficiency is, it's a measure of uh, the, the direction and uh, the distance a player went from his starting point to the ball. And so the idea is if you're taking a great route, it's 100%. And if you're taking kind of a winding route, it's less so. And right. what we're trying to get to is route efficiency for infielders. And I bring that up because I saw you tweet to our friend and colleague, Darren Wilman of BaseballSavant.com, if it factors in kind of the arc. And I'm, I'm curious, how should that work? Because a straight line is not always the right baseball play. Sometimes you want to roundabout and, and get to a better position on the ball. Like how, would, right. how would you think that would ideally work? Well, ideally, I mean, when you think about ground balls, and there's different types of ground balls as well, um, they have like, you know, they have this arc sequence. And the arc sequence is basically how the infielder judges how to attack the baseball. And when I was sending that tweet and I saw him talking about route, or when I saw him tweeting about route efficiency for infielders, I was just wondering if it had in, into context the arc sequence. And because it really it plays a major factor because when a ball's hit off the ground, an infielder can instantly tell if he needs to come charge it. And, and speed of the ball obviously matters. Obviously, you don't want to charge a baseball coming at you at you know 100 miles an hour. But if it, if it's chopped into the ground and it ha- and it has this like kind of top spin as we call it in infield circles, um, it's it, it definitely is going to change your route. And I would say the biggest thing with that is uh, timing. I think I think the first step quickness is another thing that could probably end up showing you route efficiency. I saw that you can even I think he even said that uh, you can even have like a negative uh, uh, first step because when you go back on a ball as an infielder, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but he said that there could be like a negative like backdrop. You know, when an infielder takes a back step instead of coming into charge, so their first step is back instead of right to the baseball. Yeah, sort of. It's, it's not always about direction. It's about timing. So, for example, uh, right. let's say if you're holding someone on the bag, a runner, and then you, you, know, you move off the bag, so you're moving before the ball, contact is made with the ball, that's a negative because you're already moving before the ball is hit. Okay, so exactly. So, like I said, the biggest thing I would probably look at in terms of infielders is first step quickness because that's typically going to end up determining uh, their efficiency towards the baseball. Because when I'm an infielder, the times I end up, you know, taking bad routes to baseball or times that I end up uh, not getting a clean ground ball is because my first step was either stagnant or my first step was in the wrong direction. Well, not r- wrong direction, but um, a little late to, uh, to the batted ball. Well, that's good information. We're going to have to use that because we're still trying to figure out what the best way to put this into use is. And um, that's why, you know, as, as much as we can do from here, it's always good to have the expertise of someone who actually lives this every day. So Cole Figueroa, thanks so much for your time. Really interesting stuff. Cole Figueroa uh, of the Pittsburgh Pirates, currently in AAA. Hope to see him back up at the Major League soon. And Cole, thanks so much. No problem, Mike. Thanks, Matt. So some really interesting stuff from Cole Figueroa there. I really enjoyed it. He's not the only coder in the, in the Pirates organization, which is cool. He doesn't stick out anymore. It, shows, it really shows how far the game has come, I think. Yeah, no question. The other thing that stood out to me was him talking about how much it's changed at the AAA level in right. terms of the amount of information that's available. I was surprised about that answer. I thought he was going to say, yeah, there's really not much I can do. But when he talked about, you know, I guess he's been around for like eight years in the minors, you know, what did he say? Game of telephone. That's what it was that I liked. You had to rely on what the leadoff man told you the guy would throw. And now you can actually go into it with some preparation. Yeah, no, it's, he's, a, he's a fascinating guy. Seems like the kind of guy who will probably be a coach or uh, maybe working with us as an analyst one day. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, so, listen, we're talking about the Pirates. I think we have to stick with the Pirates because we saw a record set last week. 
A record, a 2016 record. A 2016 record, but by a most unlikely source. Who, and I know you know the answer, so I don't know why I ask you these things, but who has the longest home run of the season this year? It's a Pittsburgh Pirate. And it's not Andrew McCutcheon, and it's not Polanco, and it's not any of those guys. It's Jordy Mercer. I think it's his only home run of the season. 466 feet the other night in Arizona. It's the longest home run of the season. It was definitely when I saw that reading, I was sort of like, well, I got to see this. Yeah. You know, like, credit 466 is not, by the standards of what we've seen, that's, you know, probably 95th percentile for home yeah. run distance. But we've we've seen many in the 470, 480 range. 495, I think, was the longest we've seen. As long as we've seen. We've seen number, in the, you know, there have been a few 460s this year already. Right. Um, and we'll get to those, some of those in, somewhere in a second. But the fact that Jordy Mercer did it, um, 105 it, miles per hour off the bat, 25 degree launch angle. It, but it showed us something about about what else goes into getting distance, No question. Right? Because when you look at that game, and, and, you know, Jordy Mercer crushed it, so we're not trying to say that he didn't, but three of the longest six homers of the year came in two innings of that game because he had the longest. Uh, Sean Rodriguez had one of the longest. Gregory Polanco had the longest. And you could say maybe Pat Corbin didn't have it that day, and maybe that's possibly true. But when you have something like that, I think you have to look beyond just what's going on, uh, you know, in the 60 feet six inches, and you have to look at some atmospheric effects because that game was in Arizona. The high, was, the, the roof was open. The high was 97 degrees that day, and Phoenix is a thousand feet above sea level. And so we have some data here from Dr. Nathan, who we've obviously talked about a lot. For every 10 degree increase in temperature, that's 3.3 more feet. For every thousand foot increase in elevation, that's 5.9 more feet. Uh, I don't actually know what the humidity was in Phoenix that day, but I'm guessing there was some, and that adds uh, almost a foot per uh, every, uh, I don't have the humidity numbers here, but it adds, yes. it adds distance, okay? And then obviously if there's wind, that, that, that counts too. So while he did hit the ball hard, I think he had a lot of other things, all the Pirates did that day, going in, in his favor. Yeah, actually, the, the, the next number that is for five miles per hour out blowing, well, granted this would be direct, five, if this was as if like... In a, the right direction. In the right direction, 19 feet. That's actually five miles per hour that would add that much. Right. That's sort of, um, that kind of, I have that, to go, that shocks me. I, I don't know what the wind was like in Phoenix that day, but now I have to go back to the Chris Bryan home run and see if the wind was blowing out of Wrigley, because that's a place the wind will blow. Yeah, I mean, but Chase Field also is sort of a, uh, it's a sneaky, sneaky hitter's park. It's high elevation, particularly when, and then when the roof's open, you get the really warm weather. It's not Coors Field, but I think it's, it might be number, it's, it, it's in the it's in the second tier. There's Coors Field of Hitters Parks. There's Coors Field, and then Chase Field is in the next group, probably with I don't know, Arlington maybe of just straight Hitters Parks. I don't know what else would be in there. Uh, uh, Philly maybe is a good in, in, that next, park. in that next tier. But uh, yeah. uh, Chase Field definitely the, the ball can the ball can fly out, particularly when the uh, when the roof is open. And, you know, it goes to show we're always talking about degrees and, and exit velocity in terms of getting distance, and that's the overwhelming majority of what makes that happen. But it's not the only thing. Yeah, and as, as you know, we were also talking like. Uh, Justin Upton had a home home run on April 12th in Detroit, 111 miles per hour, 27 degree launch angle, which is almost like maybe not perfect, but it's pretty close, close to perfect. And it was 450 feet, but it's Detroit. Yeah, cold, all, cold all day. Being equal, you'd think that would be farther than Jordy Mercer's. Yes, but you're right. Cold day. I don't know what the wind is like, but it, you know, it certainly wasn't 97 degrees like it was in Phoenix. And so I think we're seeing there's a lot that goes in all this. Yes, and we also don't know that we don't have a reading on the backspin off the bat to see you know how much top hand that Upton might have had relative to. To Mercer, so that's a, again another 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 hidden factor that might affect the uh, the ultimate distance. But Jordy Mercer uh, holds the belt for now. Enjoy I mean, it. I don't Jordy. know how Enjoy long. It. <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm still waiting for Sano to get a 475. Or it's, he's going to have. He's going to run into one. Wait till you know the temperature warms up, or he's in a, with the wind at his back. He's just going to hit one about a million miles. He had a game-winning single last night. I'm waiting for the the walk-off. The walk-off. I can't believe I had to write that things are going to be okay with Miguel Sano after the season he had last year, and then he, he started off you know 0 for 10 or whatever this year that the Twins lost their first nine games. He's. Gonna, I was going to. I tried to write he was going to be fine, and then I changed it. So he is fine. He's already fine. He's going to be fine, and you're right. He's being successful. 
Uh, we talked about the Pirates. We have to stay in the NL Central here because I, I think this is interesting. Do you know what O swing percentage is? Um, it's swing per- pitches swung on inside outside the strike zone. Right. Okay, it's the percentage of pitches outside the zone that you swing at. So obviously you want it to be low. You do not want to make contact with balls outside the strike zone in most cases. And we illustrated this with StatCast. I think I said that inside the zone, exit velocity is like 92, and outside it's something like 84. It's a huge drop. It, you, know, you, you hit like 180 when you make contact outside the zone and 300 in the zone. It's like the most important thing a hitter can do is not swing at pitcher's pitches. All right. So we're going to talk about the Brewers for a second here because we have this data going back 10 seasons, uh, nine seasons before this one. And so that's 300 team seasons, 10 seasons, 30 teams. Nice round number. Nice round number. The 2015 Brewers had the absolute largest O-swing percentage on record. Almost 35% of the time, they would swing outside the zone, which is brutal. And obviously, that team did not win very many games. The 2016 Brewers, by default, have improved from that. Here's how much they've improved. They now have the second lowest on record, 24.2%. They haven't just jumped a little bit. They've completely shifted things on end. They're a totally different team now. It's amazing. I mean, it, and it's amazing you could see that much of a switch just in one offseason. Um, you know, they obviously brought a new GM, came over from the Astros, so obviously they, you knew they were going to become... A very analytical GM, yeah, and, I mean, David Stern. Yeah, exactly. You knew they were going to become an analytically-minded club, but, like, the fact... I mean, Ryan Braun's still there. Um, you know, Jonathan Lucroy's still there. It's A lot of the players are still the same guys. But the guys they've imported, you wouldn't necessarily think about plate discipline guys, right? Chris Carter, who I've been talking to for a while, he's a guy who, you know, I, he, he does walk a lot, but he likes to go after and strike out pitches. Uh, and Domingo Santana, who we talked about a lot, came over from Houston... He got off to just a brutal start to his career. He struck out something like 14 times in his first 18 plate appearances, and he has cut his O-swing percentage down so much that it was like third best in baseball last I looked. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, they are off to such a start. At least their, their lineup is such that like they seem a lot more dangerous than some of the other sort of quote-unquote rebuilding teams. Ryan Braun is hitting the ball. You know, He's got a 183 weighted runs created plus, which is the best start of his career. I mean, he's crushing the ball. Chris Carter, as you mentioned, Slugging 672, 158 uh, weighted runs created plus. And then, of course, there's Santana. Um, leads MLB with 24 batted balls of an exit velo greater than 100 miles per hour. And his average exit velo is 96 miles per hour. You wrote about him the other day. He's, I mean, it's, he's looking like there's, there's a little they're, bit of there there. They're, they're, they are rebuilding in the right way. Where, yeah, they're not going to win a ton of games this year, but they're interesting, right? And you can see some of these guys who are really, they could be part of the next the next good uh, Milwaukee team. Santana, for sure. You know, they got to get some pitching, but they're doing it the right way. And I think that that's a really interesting team to watch up there. Yeah, as it turns out, and it's funny because they, they made that trade with Houston last year when Stearns was still with Houston. Um, the Gomez trade. Yeah, Gomez. They, they traded Gomez and they got, they got um, Santana. Santana and they got uh, Phillips. Brett Phillips. And they also got the lefty, Hater. That's right. Who right. throws like, you know, who's like a lefty throwing like 98 in the minors. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny to see that Stearns was on probably, you know, helped make the decision to make the trade and now is sort of reaping the benefits on the other side. And Carlos Gomez, by the way, has been really just a, kind of a mess for Houston over the parts of two seasons. He's got like 266 on base percentage, uh, one of the two or three lowest exit velocities this year. Kind of makes you wonder a little bit if the Mets saw something with that hip when they didn't want to make the yeah, trade. Yeah, certainly it's a, that has worked out well for the, the Mets. That, that trade not going down and then going and get Cespedes as a... Uh, Consolation prize. I want to get to the Astros in a second, but there's actually an interesting, another aspect of the Astros-Brewers dynamic that I think is worth mentioning that sort of speaks to the analytic um, minds in their front offices. Astros have been among the teams that have been known for infield shifts. And again, they lead the leagues thus far in infield shifts on batted balls, 328. Number two is the Brewers. And they were 18th last year. So clearly you're also seeing this is a team that is 
buying Stearns is is coming in full bore yeah. with the, the the numbers. When you see a new front office like that, you know it's not just an accident. He's like, I'm bringing this in, especially when my old team is number one. This is what we're doing now. Clearly, he finds a lot of value in it, and uh, I, I think we're gonna for like the fifth year in a row just destroy the overall number of shifts we're seeing in baseball. It's almost weird not to see shifts at this point, and we're seeing it a lot against righty hitters too, not just lefties. Yeah, but anyway, speaking of the Astros, um, you know, again they they lost again last night. Um, Dallas Keuchel. Got hit, got, I wouldn't say lit up, but six innings, five runs, five strikeouts, two walks. Not not looking he, like the Cy Young type. He's looking <laughs> like the guy he was before he was the Cy Young type. The Velo's down a little bit, I believe, which is a little bit. You, you never want to try and go too much with April Velo because Velo in April is often down a little bit just because. The Velo's down, and I saw him in an interview the other night saying he thought he was too predictable with his with his sinker because everybody knows that's his game. And he's trying to work in his cutter, and he, it's just kind of a mess right now. The whole team, really. Although, I believe I, saw, I heard you this morning say they've had three straight AL Player of the Week awards, I mean, which in, is weird. In some ways, <laughs> it's sort of alarming, frankly, that a team would have three straight AL Player of the Week winners. And guys who deserved it, you know, Altuve's been great, Rasmus has been hot, and Tyler White. Those guys yeah. have... And you didn't even mention Carlos Correa, who was yeah. awesome. <laughs> but the pitching um, has not uh, not been, been there, to <laughs> say the least. A little lightly. The, the, one, the one positive, I would say, for Keuchel, um, despite all the, you know, the K rates down a little, and the walk rates up a little, the batted balls against him, he's inducing more weakly hit ground balls than anyone in baseball. He's got 21 batted balls against with an exit velo below 85 and a launch angle below 5, and that's basically like... That's what you want. Yeah. And it, and so you said he's number one on that list. Who else is in the top five on the list? Because it's pretty impressive, right? It's Granky two, Granky and Stroman tied for second, and Kershaw and Edison Volquez tied for third. That's not a bad list to be on. No. Although Granky's kind of struggling this year, too, so maybe there's something to that. I don't but, know. Yeah, I mean, the, you look at the Astros, it's sort of amazing where they are, where they made that trade with the Brewers that doesn't look like it's working out that well. And then also a trade they made this offseason with the Phillies, where it's like these – analytically minded disciples have gone off and made trades with the yeah. Brewers that, that are now... That Phillies trade, uh, you know, for Ken... The Astros, rather. Yeah, well, the trade with the Phillies, for the Astros, they got Ken Giles, who has not been very effective this year, and they gave up a bunch of guys, including Vincent Velasquez, who has just looked absolutely incredible so far. And so you're right, it's not really working out to this point. The two big trades the Astros have made in the last year, I mean, I still think they're going to turn around and be competitive. That division is... I think wide, beyond wide open. The other four teams, as of this morning, all have either 10 or 11 wins. It's like four or 500 teams, and then the Astros are in last place, and they're probably the best, most talented team. They are the most talented team, but certainly the, the, the way the pitching has performed thus far gives reason for concern. I think Giles will be fine. He's had some, probably some bad sequencing, a couple of you know, hits falling at the, at the wrong time. But they need to they – can, they can't let it get too far away from them. To be honest, I don't care so much about the wins and losses. All I want to know is when is Marlon Gonzalez going to hit a home run that's not a solo home run. I know it's off on a tangent here. He holds the major league record for most consecutive solo home runs to start a career, like 23 or however 25. Many, 25. He on, uh, I was very excited. I saw you home run on, on I, Sunday I, I night. Saw that. I was... So every time Marlon Gonzalez hits a home run that's a solo home run, I don't know, an angel gets its wings or something. we got to see him do it with somebody on base. And uh, I think that's an appropriate place to end this week's Stack-Ass podcast. So thank you so much to our guest, Cole Figueroa of the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's a really interesting guy. Thank you, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor, sitting right next to me. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. This has been the Stack-Ass podcast. We will catch you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 